Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today is Monday, April 5th, 2021. On our podcast today, I'm joined by Dr. Erkan Biyuk from RMA of New York to discuss pregnancy with an egg or sperm donor. On Thursday, we're going to have a high-risk birth story. And then next week on Monday, social media sensation Adi Heyman will be joining me to talk about empowerment through modesty. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Okay, I'm here with Dr. Erkan Biuk, who is a reproductive endocrinologist at RMA of New York. Welcome. Thanks for coming onto the podcast. Thank you very much, Nathan, for having me. This is wonderful. So we're going to be discussing today egg donation and sperm donation, and you run that program for RMA, correct? Correct. Yes. Very nice. So first, tell us a little bit about your background, sort of where you're from, how'd you get into medicine, how'd you get you know here to the US and into infertility treatment? Sure. So I am from Turkey originally, did my medical school there uh, for six years. It is different from United States. Uh, and then after medical school, I went into OBGYN, four years of residency. In Turkey? In Turkey. So yes. 10 years? 10 years, yes. <laughs> okay. And then uh, I worked as an attending for one year. Mm -hmm. In between, I did my military service for uh -huh. a month. And then, you know, I came here. I actually came to Cornell. You know, uh -huh. where you are, where right. you were, yeah. for a research right. in REI. And then I did three years of research. I was at Cornell. at Cornell and uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. Right. And did you always know you wanted to come to the U.S. or did something change that you said, I want to leave Turkey? Or how did that, how did you make that decision? So that decision was seeded in our brains in high school. Really? I am actually from a French high school. Uh -huh. But uh, when with my friends uh, who were geared towards to do medic medical school, uh -huh. we were always talking about, you know, how... Uh, opportunities are so great in the United States, especially right. science and research. Right. So when I started medical school, I took the USMLEs uh -huh. you know, almost right away. Right. At the end of the second year, the basic sciences. At the end right. of the fourth year, the clinical. And then it was always in my mind. But then I got married at right. the end of the medical school. And then, you know, my wife also always wanted to come here. But we still did our residency there. There was no opportunity at that particular moment. Is she's a physician also? She's a physician too. She's, okay. Uh, she's a cytopathologist. When the opportunity came up, right. you know, at Cornell, you know, for a research opportunity, you know, we took it, you know, I came here first, six months later, my wife came. Actually, you know, I came mainly to do research and to do some sci basic science. Right. That was my, my main. Right. Over there, you know, I was uh, working as a uh, as an attending, you know, right. we had a nice life, honestly. Mm -hmm. Sure. But, you know, the science and the basic science was missing right and i was always research oriented i was working in a clinical job mm -hmm. so it was not very satisfying right so after i came here you know i worked at cornell and also at the, i was doing uh, ovarian freezing and transplantation at cornell okay together with dr octai and then i was also doing some basic science research at memorial sloan kettering at right. the same time which is right across the street basically. exactly yeah. so it was it was very convenient right and at cornell obviously for our listeners who don't know has a very well-known reproductive endocrinology and infertility program clinically and also research. Exactly. Meaning both. So that's your, that was a very strong program to, to come and, and work with for several years. Exactly. It was at the forefront right. you know, of, of, of IVF and REI. So it was very rewarding experience. After six months, I told my wife, you know, 
I don't think we should go back. You know, mm-hmm. why don't you come? Right. And she was also working at the same time. She was dermatologist over in Turkey. And then she resigned. She came. So, and then, you know, we stayed after three years. I right. said, you know, since we are staying, we have to do residency again. Oh, so yeah, I, well, did, <laughs> I did another residency. Yeah, that must that must have been pretty tough to redo a residency in the U.S. after finishing and also, you know, practicing already in, in Turkey. That's right. But, you know, it is tough, but it is easy at the same time. Okay. Because you know most of the stuff. Right. So it is, you know, it is not as challenging as you are an intern from out of medical school. Right. I guess that's fair. Where where did you do your residency? I did at Maimonides. At Maimonides. Yes. And did, was it, was there anyone else like you in the program who had already trained and went through medical school elsewhere? Or were you the only one in the program who had sort of gone through this before and you're with all these people junior to you? So there were. Mm-hmm. Know, there were, you know, four medical graduates. Right. You know, I wouldn't say some. I would say one or two. Okay. Maybe, you know, at, this, at that same period. Yeah. Yeah. But after I left, there were others who came. Right. Who did before. And then who do it again? But I think it is worth. When I was a medical student, I remember there was, not sort of my class, but there was an intern on the surgical rotation where I was. And he had already been a surgeon in South America for like, he's like a brain surgeon for <laughs> like five to 10 years. And, and here's this guy, he's like, he's like a really, you know, really good surgeon. He's got tremendous skills. And here he's doing his internship. This poor guy, he has like people, you know, 10 years younger than him, bossing him around, telling him, you know, change that dressing, check that lab, do this, like, you know, like, like the dude to the interns. And I was just like, my God, what he has to like swallow every day to not just you know, come out and say, you don't know anything. I'm smarter than all you people. Uh, did you have that? Was it hard to sort of come in and be even the like the bottom of the totem pole, even though you know more than all the people sort of training you so the truth is you know first i didn't care Mm -hmm. and also you know i have been in their shoes before right so i know you know i know what they are expecting from me right it doesn't care what i know right you know what is important is you know what they think is right right something is obviously you know overtly wrong right of course i remind them right and they were very nice in general right even the sometimes the attendings were asking me right you know, uh you know calling yeah. me to delivery do you think she will deliver <laughs> so it was you know very collegiate and uh-huh. nice you know i didn't feel like you know you don't know anything did you know at the time you started your residency that you were going to do infertility afterwards so you're like i'm going to do residency i'm going to do fellowship i'm going to do this like seven more years here we go correct i <laughs> i came here to do infertility actually that was wow. the, eventually right. if, if i were to stay if I could not make it, you know, I wouldn't stay here. Right. You know, just a regular OBGYN. I can right. do the same thing over there. Right. But there was no formal training in, in REI uh-huh. in Turkey. Wow. So I, want, yeah. I wanted to get a formal training. Right. And then, you know, otherwise, you know, most likely I would not have stayed. You know, I don't know. You know, things right. might have changed. Uh, but that was my main aim. Right. But it's amazing if you think about it, it's, it's 20 years because you did 10 years in Turkey then you had the year of practice in Turkey and then 10 years here, three years research, four residency, three fellowships. That's 20 years plus one in the middle before you're practicing. It's good. So you got to stay in good health so you can work for a long time. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not planning to quit anytime soon. Yeah. Okay. And so you, you finished your residency and then you did your fellowship in REI where? At Einstein. At Einstein, right. And that's where you were until just recently, correct? Yes, until the end of 2019. Until 2019. Yes. Wow. And so here you, and here you are at Army, New York, Midtown Manhattan. How's that going for you? It's great. You know, it is very intellectually stimulating. Uh-huh. You know, great colleagues, you know, a lot of patients, a uh-huh. lot of pathology, you know, high volume. It's right. nice, very nice. And how did you get interested specifically in egg donors? 
and sperm donors. So over at Montefiore, when I was practicing, when I finished my fellowship, I stayed there. Right. And then, you know, I had interest in in donors, basically, Mm -hmm. in general. We had Dr. Christina White, who was Mm -hmm. overseeing that program. And uh, she said, you know, do you want to take this program over? I said, yeah, sure. You know, Mm -hmm. I had already interest in it. You know, I learned from her and from Dr. Harry Lehman, who Mm -hmm. was the director of the practice. Then after a couple of months, you know, I took over the program. Just so we can understand, get some background on the whole concept of egg donation. What is the main reason why someone would need an egg donor? Why someone would need to be the recipient of an egg donor in order to get pregnant? Like, what are the main reasons? So the main reason is what we call diminished ovarian reserve. Mm -hmm. Basically, lack of lack of eggs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that particular woman may may have primary ovarian insufficiency, where you know. It happens before the age of 40, mm-hmm. basically very minimal amount or no amount of eggs left. These patients can still get pregnant on their own. Uh, however, you know, within the within their lifetime, there is a roughly 5 to 10% chance of getting pregnant. Right. But you don't know when it is going to happen and mm-hmm. if it is going to happen. Doing IVF or any other treatment for these patients mm-hmm. does not increase the chance over the baseline. Right. Uh, so there's really no treatment for them to get pregnant. Right. Donor egg is... Is a very good option right. because it gives them, you know, I would say 50-60% chance of having a baby. Right. That's per cycle, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So meaning if they keep doing it, it's going to work. So that's one. Diminished ovarian reserve, advanced age. Right. You know, somebody 44, 45. Right. The chances for pregnancy, even with IVF, is very low. Mm-hmm. So they would uh, they would need, often they need donor egg. So basically lack of eggs. Right. Uh, who else needs, you know, gay couples right. will need donor egg, uh, right. you know, for obvious reasons. For two, if they're two men. If they're right. two men, exactly. Correct. Right. And then I would imagine the most common reason must be women who are in their 40s or 50s who are trying to get pregnant in, in your practice. That's correct. If they are closer to 40, right. then, you know, it is worth doing IVF. Right. It's If they are closing to 50... We, right. we don't if most of the time we don't even try right you know if the, if somebody is 48 49 50 you know it's right. very very unlikely that they will get pregnant with their own eggs right so donor egg is a great option right. for those women how do you decide with them like let's say you know if they're closer to 40 usually you can they can use their own eggs if they're closer to 50 usually they can't or almost always they can't how do you work the break point like if someone's 43 44 45 46 is it just you know, you do blood tests, you give them percentages and give them the choice, or do you have hard cutoffs in how you counsel people? So there is really no hard cutoff. It is a discussion between the physician right. and the patient after determining their ovarian reserve mm-hmm. with a battery of tests. Right. So, you know, at the age of 41, 42, you know, it is, you know, just off the bat, it is, you know, without looking at anything else. Yeah. Average 12% per cycle live birth rate. Okay. If this is above 42, it is quoted as 4 to 6%. Mm-hmm. However, that 4 to 6% is most likely the ones for the ones that are closer to 43, 43 right. and 44. Uh, and as you get older, it is it right. gets less and less. If somebody has is 43, 44 year old, but their ovarian reserve testing shows that, you know, eggs numbers are minimal. We do the sonogram, we barely see one follicle, right. let's say. In those cases, you know, it is, again, it is uh, hard for to put this patient through an IVF cycle. Right. It is, you know, it is a lot of counseling, you know, regarding the low success. Uh, right. And then uh, recommending more towards donor egg. Right. Now, but if you had someone, let's say, 43 years old, but 
their tests are really good and their ultrasounds are really good, you would counsel them differently, obviously, because they're they're behaving like someone not of their average age. Exactly. In that case, there are two things that we discuss. One is the quantity of the eggs. Right. You have very good quantity of the eggs. Right. But the quality of the egg, right, which is the chromosome number basically, right. is still at for the one who is 43. It is right. not for the one who is, you know, 33, for example. Right. Right. Uh, so the majority of the eggs are going to be still abnormal. Right. But for that particular person, let's say at the, at the age of 43, 85% of the embryos that are formed mm-hmm. from that woman and her right. partner or you know, right. the sperm donor is going to be uh, abnormal. Right. However, in theory and statistically, if you have a lot of eggs, there is right. a possibility that one of them is going to be normal. Right. So that person is going to have most likely a better chance than someone who has only one follicle. For right. Example, that makes sense. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Do, do people ever do egg donors to avoid genetic diseases? Is that something people do sometimes? Like if they carry a genetic disease and for whatever reason, it's it's not amenable to them, you know, testing the embryos of this. Do people ever do em- uh, egg donors for that reason? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the ones that have mitochondrial diseases, mm. for example. Right. Mitochondria for the embryo uh-huh. is going to come from the egg, basically. Right. And then if those are carrying the disease, then the best way to eliminate this is, you know, using donor egg. Right. And then what would be the main reason someone would need um, a sperm donor? So sperm donor, a lot of possibilities. One, Uh heterosexual couple, the male partner has azospermia, and we cannot get any sperm from the testicles. For example, Sertoli-only syndrome, where there aren't any precursors of any of the sperm. Right. Okay, so that's that's one one, uh, indication. Single woman, one of the most that constitute one of our, you know, uh, population. Right. Lesbian couples. Right. Okay. They will use uh, right. donor sperm. Right. So, and, and I guess also the same thing. Are there any genetic situations where you may have a sperm donor? I mean, the only thing I could think off offhand is sometimes, you know, if a woman has like based on blood type or something, and it could be very complicated, you know, with antibodies, but that's probably not as common. It is not as common. Yes. Right. It should be, a, it should be very rare cases. You mm-hmm. know, I don't remember having, uh, you know, for, uh, blood typing com- because of the rogam, you know, right. that's, that's right. so rare. Right. I don't remember any of my patients, but it could be definitely right. an indication. And so as you have someone, either uh, an individual or couple who comes to you and they need, uh, they need a donor, how does it work with getting an egg donor, right? So let's start with them because that's a little more complicated than a sperm donor, right? So, so then egg donor, how do they find them? How are they recruited? Who are these people who are donating eggs? You know, how does that process work? So egg donor can be done in a couple of ways. One of them is anonymous mm-hmm. versus directed. Mm-hmm. Directed means somebody is using eggs from someone. Mm-hmm. It can be a young sister, often uh, a young niece, a young cousin, or a young friend. Or it can be anonymous, somebody they don't know. So, and uh, if it is anonymous, it can be fresh or frozen. Mm-hmm. Frozen means... Like right. sperm banks, we have egg banks now. Right. So women donate their eggs to those banks, uh, and those banks, you know, distribute those eggs to to the clinics, you know, for right. those women. Uh, or it can be fresh. For the fresh, uh, it is it can be either recruited through an agency. Mm-hmm. There are donor egg agencies uh, who get the stories of these women, and then they put them their profile on their website, or you know, clinics like ours, uh, or the clinic that I was working at Montefiore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also used to recruit our own donors. Okay, mm-hmm. you give advertisements, and you know they there is an egg donor, uh, universal egg donor form 
right. that they fill in mm-hmm. about their history, medical history, their interests, of course, their physical characteristics, etc., right. ethnicity, race, and then we review those, uh, or the egg bank reviews those, right. or the agency reviews those, uh, and then if they are compatible, then they undergo a psychological screening, and if that's fine, then you know we do what we call FDA screening, infectious disease screening. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is done in FDA-approved labs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if all the tests are negative, uh, then that person, that donor, is eligible for donation. We do the same testing for directed donors as well. Right. Uh, they undergo through the same process. There is a small difference between directed donors, though, even though they come back positive for something, for an infectious disease, for example. Right. Uh, the embryos are still ineligible but they can still be used for donation since they know each other and they want particularly that person. Right. As long as the recipient knows that, let's say it is positive for an X uh, infectious disease, for right. example. Understood. And then the when the donors do it, I mean, the process they go through for the donor is as if they were going through IVF, but it sort of stops after the eggs are collected and then nothing happens. You know, they go home, they're done. And if it's an anonymous donor, are they... They're recruited just through advertisements, and people do this because I guess it mu- it must pay well, right? What what do they typically get paid? The so, donors, you know, I don't have the exact number, right. but it may change from right. uh, one side of the country to another, uh-huh. from one clinic to the next, or right. from bank to bank. Uh-huh. Uh, but they are being paid uh, in general around eight to ten thousand dollars. Right. Uh, this may be less again, up to down to sure. five thousand in some other. But it's thousands places. of dollars. Thousands yeah. of dollars. That's right. Right. And because they have to undergo, obviously, it's a lot of time, and then they get injections, and there's procedures. But is this something where nowadays there are a lot of people who are, you know, willing and able to donate eggs, or is this something that's very hard to find? Like, what is the sort of the supply for egg donors? So it is not that hard to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some. Uh, you know, there is. Uh, financial incentive right uh, however they like you said they go through you know through injections mm-hmm. for a period of 10 to 14 days they go through all this screening right and then they undergo a procedure egg retrieval which is under anesthesia mm-hmm. uh, so they go through as you know a process right and uh, some of them are doing it because they had somebody who was suffering from infertility mm-hmm. uh, so you know they have they have compassion right uh, you know it is not just the finance but you know they they really want to help, you know, other couples. It is not that rare, you know. Mm-hmm. You can, we can find, um, you can find. It is not like, for example, gestational carrier. Right. Gestational carriers are much harder to find. Right. But uh, egg donors are not that difficult to find. Right. And in your practice ballpark, what percentage of them are anonymous versus directed donors? Would you say? You know, I don't know the exact numbers, but majority are anonymous. Majority are anonymous. Yes. Directed is much rarer to find. Yeah. So each has an advantage and disadvantage. Right. For example, the advantage of the directed donor is uh, if it she's a relative, then right. you share some genes. Right. So that's one of the main reasons right. why people prefer. Uh, it may be less expensive because right. it is you know almost completely compassionate. Right. Uh, right. You You're know. just paying for the medications and you know exactly. whatever. But you yeah. don't necessarily pay your sister for right. that. Right. Uh, however, it depends on your sister, I suppose. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, however, you know that may be. Uh, social or psychological problems in the future right. as a directed donor. Right. Uh, for anonymous, you know, those social psychological problems are generally less common. Mm-hmm. However, it is a different right. gene pool. But often, uh, you know, 
uh, as I said, it is not easy to find somebody from you know somebody you know you know right. as an aid donor, and also you know because of these potential psychological problems in the future, anonymous donation is much more often. I would say maybe eighty percent to twenty percent right. or okay. ninety to ten. Yeah, I wanted I wanted to talk about that aspect of it. This the the psychological social when it's an anonymous donation is that a hard rule meaning is there any way for a child to then later find out who their egg donor was or is it absolutely closed to them it depends on what the donor and the recipient wants uh-huh. so in the in that universal uh, donor form that i mentioned uh, there is a place where they check if they would like to meet if the child wants to meet if they are okay to meet the child for right. example and what I noticed, often they say yes. You know, they don't have any problem. The donors, you know, right. meeting, you know, the child. Right. But if the donor said no, then it's closed. The it child is, will not be able to find out. It is closed. You know, from our part medically, right. uh, because you know they are the donors are you know their names are not there. It is right. all uh, code codes. Mm. However, uh, you know, with the advance of technology, with twenty three and me, etc., people are finding people out. People are finding out exactly. They are, there is a potential that you know they may find out in the future. That's so, so interesting. So we can we we don't tell that yes it is yes it is anonymous. You know they are not. She's not gonna know the donor. Donor is not gonna know them from our part. Yes, but in the future, if the child you know makes right to do diligence to find, you know. We, we can we cannot avoid that right but you're saying mo- many if not most of the donors tend to be okay with someone contacting them later you know 20 My years later to say exactly they are generally checking it is okay for them to contact if they want to most of them check yes and in, in your experience because you've been doing this a while how often does that end up happening you think that the children end up finding out or, okay. or yeah do the parent and do the parents typically tell the children that they were the product of an egg donor they typically do they are recommended to tell the children, mm-hmm. uh, because it is worse if the child finds out later without parents telling them. Right. And most couples are okay to tell them. Uh-huh. I had patients, you know, couples who yeah. said, I, I'm never telling. Right. And then in those cases, they are looking for, you know, a blood type match to right. make sure that, you know, they are not, right. it is not found Correct. through that route. Right. Uh, but majority of them are okay and are ready to tell uh, and they are recommended to tell. There is a small minority that right. never. And when when do they tell the children? Is it from always or at a certain age or is this you know when's it recommended? It is it is generally you know, I would say always you know mm-hmm. slowly after the age of four or five you know once they are uh, you know not not a shock at the age of twelve or eighteen. Sperm donation must be easier in the sense of doing it because it's it's not as you know painful exactly. <laughs> to get a sperm so... donor and they and they but they get less money I assume they get. <laughs> That's true. They get yeah. less money. Uh, it is less painful, right. for this, sure. This is a economic supply demand. Exactly. Yeah. It is easier to produce sperm right. than to bring the eggs to the lab. Right. So yes, it is much easier. You know, sperm donation is much easier. They undergo through the same rules, though. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to right. check. You know, uh, sperm has if it is anonymous, especially sperm has to be current quarantined right. for six months. Mm-hmm. So they produce the sperm. They do blood testing. Mm-hmm. The sperm is there for six months. After six months, they do. They go back for another blood testing to mm-hmm. make sure that they didn't have infectious disease during mm-hmm. that period, like HIV or something. Exactly, yeah. HIV, okay. Hep B, Hep C, yeah. 
syphilis, chlamydia, and gonorrhea. Uh-huh. And for men, HTLV1 and 2 as well. And they are checked for CMV, cytomegalovirus right. 2. Right. So, and then six months later, you know, they are checked again. If they are still negative, then it is off the quarantine. That's mm-hmm particular specimen. And when, when parents are making these decisions about, you know, egg donors and sperm donors, and let's assume it's an anonymous situation, is it something where they get real detailed or saying, you know, I want someone who, you know, plays lacrosse and is over six feet tall and has, you know, brown hair? It, it, does it get to that? Or is it like, how detailed do they, do they um, choose from on their list? It depends. Uh-huh. And it is very different from one patient to another. The majority of Patients, what do they care is ethnicity mm-hmm. and race. Uh, some of them do not even care about that. Right. Uh, but majority do. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, they look at their hair colors, mm-hmm. eye colors. They look at their educations. These are all uh, given to them right. as an information. But, you know, somebody, you know, it is rare that you are going to find somebody who is going to look for a specific attribute. Mm-hmm. You know, it is generally general attributes. Do they look like them? You know, if right. they are blue-eyed, you know, they are looking for blue or green-eyed, for example. Right. But otherwise, you know, majority of couples do not go into that uh, that much detail if they played lacrosse, etc. Right. However, they check their height. They check their weight. You know, right. Current. Eye color, hair color, you know, because these are the first attribute that someone sees. Right. So they're, you know, these are important. But otherwise, you know, I, I didn't feel that, you know, they are, the couples are going into much detail. Although, you know, they are doing much of much of it online. You know, they go to uh-huh. the bank website and they are choosing from there. Got so, it. So, you know, I don't know how much, when I speak to them, they don't go too much into detail, but maybe they do when they are at the website. And then do the egg donors always come through? I mean, if, if you have a couple who's, you know, having fertility issues and you guys make a decision, she's going to use an egg donor and she finds someone, does the egg donor then come to your office or is it something where the egg donor is somewhere else and then the eggs get brought to your office or is it either? So it is, uh, there are many scenarios. Uh-huh. Uh, for example, if that egg donor is our egg donor, then right. most likely she lives in New York. Right. Uh, so then she comes to our right. office for blood work and everything. Right. We collect their, her eggs, mm-hmm. etc. Sometimes it is possible that they find through an agency. Mm-hmm. And if it is an agency, the, that donor may be anywhere in the United States. Right. So and then you know it it becomes a little bit more complicated, more expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, we prefer that they uh, they can do their screening and uh, monitoring blood work and the sonograms. Right. At, at the place where they live, right. But then they have to come for retrieval to right. our office because because if you if you have to freeze the eggs to ship them, then there's a the success rate's going to be lower. Exactly. Got it. So, so you need the eggs fresh, and then you inseminate them right away. Exactly. Since we have that option, you know, yeah. we, we should we would rather do that. In that case, of course, it becomes more expensive for mm-hmm. the couples because they fly right. and the accommodation right. costs, etc. Right. But if the success rate is higher, then maybe it's not more expensive. Yes. And what do people do at fertility centers that are not New York City? All right. So they're in a place that's more remote. Are there, you know, if you're in a smaller town and there's, you know, there is an infertility clinic, do all of them have their own, you know, community of egg donors? Or in that case, do they just not do egg donation? How does it work? I mean, if there's an IVF clinic, mm-hmm. uh, most likely, you know, often, I would say, you know, they have an egg donor program. Right. But if you are in rural areas or in uh, places, there are places where you have to 
travel like two, three hours mm-hmm. to do the to go to IVF clinic, for example. Right. Those clinics still, you know, collect, I believe, you know, their right. donors from the local area or from agencies and again. fly them in. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, of course, if they can, uh, if the couple can uh, mm-hmm. afford it, yes, they right. can fly them in, you know. Again, from agencies, you can get donor from anywhere in the country. If that particular couple likes that particular donor and if they have the means, Right, they'll do it. They they are going to do it. Is egg donation ever covered by insurance, by health insurance? I know infertility treatments, you know, frequently are, sometimes are not. Obviously, it depends on exactly the scenario. But what about, you know, for getting egg donation? Is that ever covered? It's a tricky answer. Okay. So egg donation is not covered by insurance. However, if the couple has IVF coverage, mm-hmm. uh, so the egg donation has two parts. The donor gives the eggs, uh-huh. and then we fertilize and transfer the right embryo to the recipient right so no insurance is going to cover the donor part uh-huh. screening egg collection monitoring etc however if that particular couple has ivf coverage the embryo transfer right would may be covered. be covered by her insurance that's so interesting cuz they're they would cover the woman herself to have a re, you know stimulation and a retrieval and everything but they won't cover to have to, ha- to have her outsource it to somebody else even though the success rate is going to be better no they they won't you know i never heard any insurance that would do that and so for a couple then what what is the added cost if they're doing ivf and then whatever it is whether they're paying or whether it's insurance what is the added cost to them to having an egg donor i mean again it changes a lot mm-hmm. uh, so now you are treating two patients at right. the same time sure uh, you know, not only the woman, but right. we have the, uh, the egg donor, egg donor, and we have the uh, man, of yeah. course. You know, because they are also checked. You know, right. they, they are also undergo screening processes. Mm-hmm. You know, it it changes a lot. You know, mm-hmm. I cannot give you a specific number, but it may be twenty thousand, thirty thousand. Wow. But it's a lot. It is yeah. a lot. Yes. Yeah. However, uh, one thing that we do often is split cycles, because the donors are young. Oh, two people can have... use the same donor. Correct. And oh, that makes sense. They have uh, a lot of eggs and, merge, you know, good number of these eggs are normal. Right. Uh, so well, we do one cycle for the donor. If they have 20 eggs, it is split 10-10 right. for the donors. So right. they share the cost and they share the eggs. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. So that, that would be a, an interesting way to do it. And then if someone is going to have a pregnancy through IVF and they ultimately choose to have an egg donor, obviously on the on the plus side, the embryo will have a much younger genetic age, so a lower chance of genetic abnormalities, lower chance of miscarriage, lower chance of Down syndrome, all of these. Are there any uh, risks to doing it? Any any risks that increase by having an egg donor? I'm specifically, I know preeclampsia is something that's interesting that seems to be higher when you use an egg donor. So uh, not that I know of, honestly. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean... We did the study for the sperm donors right. and uh, from SART database, uh-huh. Society for Assisted Reproductive right. Technology, we published a couple of years ago. Yeah. We did not find any difference because we hypothesized that, you know, if it is a if it is a sperm donor, for example, uh, the woman is not sensitized, you know, there is no right. prior semen exposure right. or sperm exposure from that person. So maybe the preeclampsia, for example, would be higher. But it wasn't. And the obstetrical literature you know, obviously any woman who's having egg donation tends to be at increased risk for preeclampsia anyways, because either she's older or IVF and these are risk factors. Okay. But it does seem to be that if you sort of match, even at the same age, the ones who have egg donors have a higher risk. And the thought is maybe that, you know, when you 
when you don't have an egg donor, right, the pregnancy is 50% genetically yours and 50% genetically somebody else's. And if there's an egg donor, it's 100% genetically somebody else's. And there's thought that there's some immune component to this. But it's interesting. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating concept. So that, that seems to be the case. It's not a reason not to do it, but it's just one of the things. And then would you say in your, in your experience, I was trying to figure out if the trend for egg donation would be going up or going down. And on the one hand, you would think maybe it's going up because the technology is better and maybe women who are, you know, in their, you know, mid to late forties are more, you know, uh, eager to get pregnant potentially than they were before, or they know about this. On the other hand, there's probably a lot of women who are in the same situation, but have now frozen their eggs from five to 10 years ago. And so they don't need egg donors. They're their own egg donors. So which have you seen in terms of, uh, the trends in your practice? Are they going up, down, or about the same? I don't have such a long history, you know, okay. have, uh, in REI world. I have, I would say, 13, 14 years mm-hmm. of experience. Three of these mm-hmm. was fellowship. So, uh, you know, what I saw was an increase in demand uh, over the years, because if you look at the SART data, Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, mm-hmm. uh, the proportion of women with diminished ovarian reserve mm-hmm. increased over the years, mm. it was maybe for five percent mm-hmm. when I started. It was 14 15 percent a couple of years ago. Why? Because women are delaying their right. uh, pregnancies. So during that period, it increased. Right. But then in 2012, egg freezing became clinical. You know, right. It was research before that. Right. So, but those women did not come back. You know, some of them actually. I had a couple of patients. You know, who were interested in using their eggs that they froze in 2013 and 14. Mm-hmm. But you are right. As this woman come back to use those eggs, right. uh, then uh, there will not be that much demand for right. the other egg. However, the counterpart to that is, you know, women are still delaying their childbearing. Right. You know, and not everybody is freezing their eggs. Right. So the more they delay, the more likely that they are going to need third party for reproduction. Right, right. So I, I guess we are going to see the data. You know, yeah. it is not easy to speculate. And yeah. I don't think it is right to speculate. Yeah. I mean, I imagine, yeah, I imagine if you're, as your egg freezing numbers go up, your egg donor numbers will probably go down, but that's a, a lag of about 10 years. You're meeting with a couple and you're trying to determine if, you know, with her, is, is it better to, you know, try her own or try egg donation? Aside from, just the numbers, like you think it'll work if she tries on her own. Is there anyone who you would advise against using an egg donor? Is there someone who shouldn't be having an egg donor? Or it's basically just if they're, if they have the means and they're okay with sort of the, you know, the social sort of whatever, you know, to work around, uh, then it's fine. Or is anyone who would not be? I mean, the one who would not be is someone for her, the getting pregnant is contraindicated. Mm, okay. That would be one. But in those cases, they may use egg donor and a gestational carrier at the right. same time. Right. With their partner's sperm or with a donor's sperm. Right. So there are all these possibilities. So egg recipients, they undergo also psychological screening. Mm. And often they pass. Uh, you know, that would be one hurdle. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is a major psychopathology that is discovered. Right. This may be a hurdle. Right. But otherwise, you know, if they are uh, okay to get pregnant and right. if they don't have the means with their own eggs, right. uh, I don't see any reason why we would uh, refuse someone to use donor eggs. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. It's such an interesting topic and just that it's available and it's an option and it's allowing 
many women who otherwise would not be able to conceive and carry a pregnancy uh, to do so, which I think is fantastic for them. And it really does open up um, opportunities that didn't exist before, which is pretty much what you guys do every day. That's your job. <laughs> That's right. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.